Hi, everybody. Welcome to a special bonus edition of Security Management Highlights. The first thing is, is that a lot of businesses don't realize that they have an obligation to protect people in home-based operations. In other words, once you assign people officially to the home as, a, as their work site, all the obligations of OSHA and everything that kicks in with that apply too. I think, I think COVID-19 has demonstrated, and if this is potentially one of the positive things, the importance of family, the importance of community. The importance of community to support government and the support the importance of governments to to work effectively together um, now that's that i think is an, uh, an ideal scenario uh, and one that we all hope to see play out all that and more on this special edition of security management highlights i'm your host the security guy chuck harold james s kwood phd cpp at ctm is the president of factor one a behavioral assessment and management firm with a focus on violence risk. Dr. Kaywood has worked in the area of threat assessment, violence risk assessment, behavioral analysis, violence prevention, security analysis, and incident resolution for more than 25 years. He has successfully assessed and managed over 5,000 violence-related cases and participated in developing the workplace violence guidelines for ASIS International. Dr. Jim Kaywood. Welcome to Security Management Highlights, my friend. Thanks. Good morning. It's been a while since we talked uh, at ATAP way back in the day. Uh, I'm so glad to speak to you today uh, because your expertise is so relevant to the current state of affairs in the world. We're going to talk about domestic violence and COVID-19. Really something new, isn't it? This has never happened before. Tell us tell us what's going on with that. Well, you know, it's, it's a real challenge. Um, when We've all recognized that domestic violence is a significant portion of uh, the kinds of cases that organizations struggle with uh, in normal workplace violence concerns and situations day to day. In this case, though, it's, it produces a huge number of additional challenges. The first thing is, is that a lot of businesses don't realize that they have an obligation to protect people in home-based operations. In other words, once you assign people officially to the home as, a, as their work site, all the obligations of OSHA and everything that kicks in with that apply too. So now all of a sudden I'm assigned a home, I'm sitting there doing my job on my computer, and the business has an obligation to protect me from risks as if I was sitting in an office. But what happens if there's domestic violence? What happens if now I'm trapped with a spouse who has already been abusive, but now is anxious around the issue of health, anxious around the issue of money? Um, there's no relief from the kids because they're all home from school and all these stresses continue to build up. And now we have a situation where I'm trapped with an individual who I can't escape from easily. They can't escape from me and they're already abusing me or they start abusing me. And then what do I do? More resources uh, are in the community are unavailable to me. Hard to get to a shelter, hard to even notify people that something's going on without my spouse hearing about it. and so. When I notify my business, I might be able to do that through Slack or chat or other related, more encrypted functions of my laptop or my other communications with my business. But now the business is on notice and now they have an obligation uh, to do assessment and intervention to the degree they can, just as if I was coming to the office. And that's a challenge for, of course, then even for threat management teams that are all operating remotely as well. In terms of getting resources, how do you do the background checks? How do you do interviews? with collateral witnesses when the one witness you really need to talk to, the main witness, is sitting at home and can't necessarily just leave and walk around the block and have a conversation with you about what's really going on. So this all gets to be quite a big, big challenge um, because the obligation doesn't go away and yet the grounds completely change. 
most people don't know that if I use my personal computer or phone for work purposes, that, that the employer basically has access to that legally. Any, anything on your phone, not just your work stuff, right? What are we doing about that? Are we able, as an employer, to find out what's going on using some technology there? In other words, now my employee has texted a girlfriend that her husband just punched him while she was trying to type up a memo for the boss. Are we obligated to respond to that since we have access to it as an employer? We are obligated to respond to it the minute we're aware of it. Absolutely. And the question is, how do we do that? Well, we need to then talk to the girlfriend. What else have you heard? Just like we would if they were in the workplace. What else have you heard from this individual? What else have they shared with you about the relationship? Have there been prior times when she's indicated that, in fact, she's been assaulted uh, by her spouse? You know, tell me about their dynamic um, and all the normal things that we would do in a collateral interview from a witness. Then the question becomes what you raise is a very interesting point. Can we reach into that person's phone or computer and create some kind of uh, ability to view what's going on? And the answer is yes and no. And, and here's where it gets really intriguing. Just like you can't put a uh, camera inside a bathroom because of the expectation of privacy, even though you have potentially the legal, depending on the state statutes as well as the federal statutes, potentially have a legal ability to reach into someone's computer with their permission because it is a work-related now device and look at files, do other things, can you actually turn on cameras? Can you actually do things like turn on microphones? And the answer is, is that that gets into electronic espionage, electronic surveillance, and there's a real legal thorny wicket here because ultimately that's almost cyberstalking in a private space. Does that make sense? And what yeah, happens if yeah. you inadvertently, what happens if you inadvertently, the camera's on and someone walks by and they're naked? Well, right? I've had this, I mean, I've had this huge... argument with people come up where people, some employers are requiring an employee to keep a camera on all the time while they're engaged in work. And, you know, a yes. lot of people are saying, eh, you don't do that in my office. You don't have a camera in my cubicle. So why well, have that's it right. here? Yeah, this is, this is really tricky stuff. Well, it is tricky stuff. And, and again, getting re access to resources to work out these questions is hard. You know, getting back to the domestic violence piece for a minute, as an example, it could be very helpful to be able to set up a, a, an ability for an individual to go into uh, an account, let's say, into their uh, work email and create a draft uh, of a document that then they could write down everything that's going on inside a domestic violence situation into that draft document. And we know that draft documents, if they're not sent, don't reach any kind of log, right? So now I'm in a situation where if my employer was capable of going into that, dra into that computer and looking at draft documents on the email program that the employer provided them, now I have a means of communicating that isn't necessarily going to be easily discovered. Where if I have the person call me on the phone or do other things, um, there'll still be a record. But the good news is, is that remember, if I'm calling my employer, They'll know that the individual checking my phone, my spouse, maybe my domestic spouse, will know that I'm called my employer. The good news is, is as long as they keep it non-textual, non-voicemail, then, of course, all they know is they called the employer. They don't know what they discussed, if they, in fact, can get some privacy to have that discussion. Does that make sense? It and so does. we're, in a way, going old school may be the way to go. As an example, what happens if I could write up a document about what I, what's going on in the house and I could fax it? using a fax program to my employer. Now they know I sent a fax to my employer, but there's no copy of the document. 
Does that make sense? And so in some ways, what we need to think about in these types of challenging cases is go old school um, and think about ways that things won't be captured and archived. Surprisingly, most of what you say does make sense to my small security guy brain. Now, here's a trick <laughs> question for you. All right. What about expectations of privacy in husband and wife situations as a spouse? Yes. I can assume that my wife's not going to be chatting about me, uh, about something going on in my home privately, but it's not the home anymore. Yes. It's work. Right? It's, yes. Yeah, it's all merged together. Well, it is merged together. And the answer really is if I'm on the clock getting paid, right? Um, he, that spouse may have an expectation of privacy because you can have expectations of anything. But the employer has an obligation to then still engage in the process. And the employee, based on the policies and procedures of the organization, may also have an obligation to continue to report the behavior because there's policies in place that state if you're subject to harassment or you know someone's threatening you, you have an obligation as an employee to tell us. And so they're going to have obligations to tell us too. And so there's going to be these competing. There always are in domestic violence. And, and, and frankly, any, as you know, Chuck, from your experience, any workplace violence case, there's always this com competition between what I want to share with you and the embarrassment and the issue of privacy versus what the company is requiring me to do and what is going to, I perceive as maybe even put myself at additional risk. And so there's always going to be that going on. But in this case, as you said, it's it's really amplified. And the consequences can be so immediate. I mean, this is not someone who now can go to work for 10 hours, 8 hours, 10 hours, and be away from the environment where they could be hurt or abused and gain resources and then come maybe come back into the environment. These are people now trapped who could have immediate consequences if their spouse somehow overhears or believes that they're doing something that is going to embarrass them or put them at legal risk. An additional thing here is remember, even if she were to call the police and he was to be, or, or she was to be arrested, depending on who the uh, you know uh, abusing spouse is, they're not gonna go away to jail for six months. They're not even gonna go away for jail for the weekend. They're trying to empty jails right now because of the COVID. So this person's probably gonna get cited out, even if law enforcement's called, unless the injury is egregious. And even then they may get out within a matter of days because of wanting to stop overcrowding. Intently, you're going to have Go to ahead. report that. You're going to have to report that to OSHA as a workplace violence right. incident, right? I mean, oh, there's absolutely. a new one. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So yeah. Here's, here's my. Let's, we only have a few minutes, but I want to wrap this up, and I want to watch your feedback on this. I see a silver lining here. I've lectured on workplace violence and domestic violence uh, for many years, and almost without exception, every time I give a lecture to a group of employees, somebody in that room literally stands up or raises their hand during the session and says. I'm a victim. I've been a victim for 10 years, 15 years, and nobody in the organization knew it, but the person now mm -hmm. felt comfortable that we've brought this out to speak about it, right? I yes. can see where maybe people working at home where this is merged with workplace and, and home uh, may feel more comfortable if the company can engage them at this level in a real-time anonymous level, right? As opposed to I go to work, then I go home and get punched and I come back to work. This is real time. You could be getting punched while you're sitting there working for the company at home. What are your thoughts on that? Could we see something positive come out of this as far as reporting and awareness? Well, I think, yes, I absolutely believe that we could see something positive. First of all, in the sense that businesses are going to need to start grappling with the reality of the legal risk they've always had with at-distance employees, remote employees, that maybe they haven't had to really address before. 
Think of all the call center people that are distributed and operating out of their uh, basements. Think of all the and, and customer service people and think about all the pharmaceutical reps and, and all of the salespeople that are on the road in a company car, all of which may have been exposed to place violence, domestic violence in the workplace, and yet the company wasn't grappling with reality. They had an obligation to give them some level of protection. So that's positive. I think you're absolutely right about the other as well. Now that the person's confronted with the reality that they are constantly at risk, it may increase the level of reporting, which ultimately we hope would lead to assessment and intervention and safety in greater numbers. I mean, it's a hope. It's not a guarantee. Um, and there's certainly a lot of people that are being harmed right now in the home. We know from Cyprus and Europe, as well as in the United States, that the domestic violence uh, incidents are going up as far as we can tell uh, based on additional reporting and, and use of helplines and, and requests for service uh, from shelters. As we get through this, I'm hoping that the long-term gain will be that we can have that additional sense of being connected and having resources available and then ultimately get these people uh, the help they need long-term. Yep. Workplace violence and COVID-19. Dr. Jim K. Woody walks the walk and talks the talk. Always a pleasure to speak with you, my friend. Fascinating insights on uh, something completely new and never before seen uh, in our profession. A new vertical market, I suppose, in one way. Uh, thanks so much for coming on Security <laughs> Management uh, Magazine, my friend. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Paul Mercer is the founder and managing director of Hawksite SRM Limited, a security risk mitigation consultancy based in the U.K., Paul holds a master's degree in international politics and served as an officer in the Royal Navy Fleet Air Arm, where he was deployed as head of sector intelligence for the United Nations mission in Georgia Caucasus. Mr. Paul, welcome to Security Management Highlights, my friend. Thanks. Thanks for having me. For today's topic is the potential for civil unrest post-COVID. I've thought about this, and this economic downturn, I think, is creating some unforeseen consequences. Tell us about your thoughts on that. Well, uh, yeah, I couldn't agree more. I, I think that we are in an unprecedented situation, the most overused phrase, I think, of the last four weeks, but accurate. And I think that the focus, quite rightly, has been from uh, family to community to government level on firefighting and immediate response to something that caught us off guard, rightly or wrongly. I now think that we're in a position where we need to look at what the emerging threats are that are associated with this. and. Uh, I think we're beginning to see indications of what may be, and there is arguably historical precedence to maybe give a direction on which way it might go and how we might handle it. I think if, if you use the, the skill sets of predictive threat analysis, then we need to look at, is there a threat actor to carry out the activity of civil unrest? And I think both the information that we're seeing right now is indicating yes, for various reasons, which I'll come on to. So we need a threat actor to carry out an activity that's civil unrest, and then we need something to drive them to do so. And so I think now if we look, look at both recent history and also start imagining other drivers that have not become, uh, are not necessarily relevant in, in history because of the unprecedented nature of what people are going through. We've effectively locked up the world um, as part of a firefighting response to this outbreak. And now we're starting to understand how they're going to behave. So for me, in trying to understand this, we need to look at what are the key drivers for civil unrest, understand them from a historical basis and see are any of those drivers relevant in the current situation. But I also think what's important is to understand where civil rest can lead if it's uncontained. And I think there are also 
recent points in history that will show us that actually uncontained civil unrest can have quite catastrophic effect. Let's talk about some maybe historical economic situations. I mean, the percentage of people unemployed worldwide is astronomical and unprecedented. And if people can't support their families, rightfully so, I mean, what's the alternative? It just seems like this is a foregone conclusion to me. Yeah, I, I'd agree. So b- before we look at the economic drivers and, and precedent for violent protests under those conditions, I, I think it would be worth focusing on the more immediate concern, which may be the precursor to uh, economic drivers to follow. And you've touched on the first, the first of those, which is what is the social impact of locking people up uh, uh, for an extended period of time um, before the fear element about their economic stability uh, and the direct health concerns on, on them and their family. And I think if you, look, if you look even in the media over the past couple of days, we have um, uh, aggressive protesting taking place in Pacific Beach, San Diego. We've got multiple arrests taking place in quite violent protests just a week ago in Brazil. Uh, Germany, just two days ago, multiple arrests in Berlin. Paris, uh, extensive violent protests taking place um, to the suburbs to the north. The, the initiation of those protests is, the, is, is arguably the impact of extended quarantine. And in many cases, the demonstrators are directly protesting against um, government-enforced uh, lockdown measures. The driver that then goes on from there, and we've seen this all over the world, is how does the government and the security forces then respond to that? And in Paris, for example, the extension and the escalation of those those, uh, protests was reported to be down to the response of the police and how there was quite an aggressive response into what are high density, uh, sometimes migrant working uh, areas of Paris, which have exacerbated it. So... If we want to look at the potential for this, it's happening right now and it's happening all over the world from Italy through Brazil into the US and beyond. Um, And that's the immediate, what I would call human drivers. This is a very human instinct. Um, And that's the initiation that that governments are going to need to know how to contain before we start talking about the economic impact. So so if you look at if you look back in history and and it's not so that so long ago, look at the kind of 2020 uh, 2009 to 2011 period, um, w- we went into the um, last state of global economic um, uh, difficulties. And what transpired in Europe, I think, most notably was the uh, was the anti-austerity riots in Greece that went on for two two summers. Uh, our, the, 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 the more modern version of the summer of rage. And what followed very soon after that in London were the London riots Uh, of 2011. Within that same time period, anti-capitalist riots, uh, anti-G20 protests taking place in Toronto and London and Hamburg, um, the Tea Party protests back in the US, um, anti-tax protests. And and more recently in in Paris, we were having anti-capitalism demonstrations in Paris in in 2018. So we've already got precedent in, um, in, in times of economic downturn for violent civil unrest. And I'm no economist, but the suggestion is that the economic impact of this situation may be significantly worse than that. And therefore, I would suggest that in terms of an economic downturn as a driver to violent civil unrest, 
it could be very evident. Very fair point. Here's what I'm concerned about. I know as a policeman, having worked the streets for a long, long time, that humanity is basically good. People are basically good. Individuals are basically good. People in big groups, not so much, right? Because now you got group think and all kinds of other factors driving that. If we look at Antifa, which we know is an orchestrated, uh, you know, intentional group of people with a specific political agenda stirring up unrest intentionally, let's say, right? Not spontaneous. How much of this of this is going to be, I mean, there's no way of knowing, but how much of this is going to be spontaneous and how much is this going to be politically driven and started by people that have some sort of agenda? This is what I'm most worried about. Not that people aren't going to behave, it's that somebody's going to say, hey, let's go misbehave. You know, I think that points very well very well put. I think the right of freedom of speech um, and for peaceful protest all over the world has been hijacked with people with other agendas. Um, even if the initiation of that, uh, of that voice of, of dissent or, or lack of trust in leadership or, or whatever that might be starts with the truest intent. And then you have other, other groups with a completely different agenda. So if, if we look at the, the, the recent protests or last summer in Paris, the, the aggression that was carried out during those protests that was, were, was headlined by the, by the, uh, uh, the uh, Gilets Jaunes, the aggression wasn't carried out by them reportedly. The aggression was carried out by far, far uh, right-wing uh, nationalist groups that were using it as an opportunity not only to promote violence, but to loot and steal and what have you. And I think that the potential for that is is huge. Um, I'm not an ex-police officer, so uh, I would I would bow to your experience in how intelligence indicates who is involved in that, how to segregate the crowd, how to identify those people with uh, you know the right to 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 put a, a decent message across to government and leadership and those that are trying to uh, disrupt the situation. As my grandmother always said, it's not what people do to you, it's how you react to it, right? And I, mm-hmm. one of my other concerns is that a peaceful protest is going to start and there's going to be some government agency somewhere that says, we all need riot gear for this and fire hoses when, you know, maybe that wasn't the right message. And that itself can spark a chain reaction. Do you think that the governments are thinking about these things? Are they, are they, are they thinking beyond this as a normal day-to-day protest, we're going to tactically handle it this way, because this is unprecedented. The entire world is sitting home. That's never happened before in the history of the world, and I think we need to respond to it differently. I think the answer to that question depends, in in some cases, the, the, the different parts of the world that you're in. I think the job of frontline police officers, polit- uh, particularly riot-trained police officers, is, is a hugely difficult one, and I think there are fear there, there is a fear factor both sides of the picket line, if you like. And the police officers themselves need, need to be highly trained to be able to understand how to diffuse the situation. The simple, as you said, the simple donning of riot gear could arguably be seen as a, a red rag to a bull. And maybe there needs to be a layered, a layered approach in which the initial engagement with the protesters is done by uniformed police officers who were trained to be able to engage them in conversation, allow them their voice, and try to segregate and identify where that protest is being infiltrated by people that have a fundamentally different agenda. And there will be different agendas because when you look at how this is going to play out, the environmental agenda, and of course the UK recently has been subject to quite 
significant disruptive activity by an environmental organization. Some of, some of the environmentalists whom are, are observing the positive environment, uh, environmental impacts of this lockdown uh, and are lobbying government to say that the release mechanisms that will be put in place over the coming weeks and months to try and get us back into a normal way of life must be subject to some environmental uh, precursors. These environmental groups, uh, in some cases, may uh, exacerbate the situation to a greater level. So if, 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 it, if it's carried out the way it was done in the UK, where they were blocking roads into airports, blocking roads into the cities, after a period of time where people have been locked down, unable to get to their offices, once again, human nature might be the spark that initiates engagement between the protesters and the general public who, who just want to try and get back on with their lives again. And then security forces then need to engage to be able to try and separate those groups. So I think I think the answer, as you've already alluded to, is that this is going to be this could be far more complex than a very defined group of people protesting for a single issue. Um, it's, it's going to be far more complicated than that. And and, and this brings us back to the point that I made at the beginning about what happens if you can't contain civil unrest effectively. And, and, I, and I reach out to, to examples, extreme examples like the Arab Spring, for example. If you look at what happened in Libya, that started as a protest. It actually happened, started as a protest that was an annual protest that had been going on for 10 years based on an atrocity that was carried out at a prison near Benghazi. There was then an anti-government protest that was happening on the same day in close vicinity. And when Gaddafi's son was dispatched to go and deal with it, he put the two protest groups together and it ignited. And it took everybody surprised, including the protesters. Now, I'm not suggesting for a second that, that that's what we're going to deal with. But, but if you look at the continuum between um, civil unrest and a state of emergency bordering on civil war, which is exactly the way... Uh, Libya is currently stated, you, you start with ci uh, civil dissatisfaction and peaceful protest. The protesters are ignored, potentially suppressed. If the government or security force action is seen to be over-aggressive, God forbid there is a fatality, then you've got a revenge motive driving violent protest. Violent protest uh, exacerbates the breakdown in law and order. Militancy, vigilanteism can take over the next thing you're in a state of emergency. I just think that without being a harbinger of doom, we just need to be aware of that continuum. And different countries in different parts of the world will already be at a different part on that roadmap, if you like, or that continuum. And I think we just need to be aware that those series of trigger events, if uncontained, one can lead to another, can lead to another. And we don't even know currently what the end game of this, of this current pandemic is and how desperate and how frightened people are and how people are gonna respond to the loss of loved ones, possibly due to, you know, a perception that governments haven't handled it quite the way they should do. And it's going to differ all over the world. But I think it's a serious concern. Your continuum is spot on, as they say over, over the pod. <laughs> but here's the difference. That model you're talking about, that continuum, is usually contained to one area at a time throughout history. Or maybe it may be a couple regional, right? Maybe it's regional. We're talking about the potential for every single country on earth to have this happen at one level or another, depending on where you are. And that is something nobody's ever thought about. You could literally come out of this with an entire new world structure of government and stuff. It's, uh, 
it's pretty amazing to think about. Now, I am an optimist. I'm a, I'm a cautious optimist by nature. I think we're going to come out of this okay. And, but I think it's going to be painful before that happens, to your point, right? But in the end, we're going to learn and good things will happen in the future. What's your thoughts on this? I mean, I guess it could go the other way where we come out of it looking like a whole different world. It's not a good thing. Where, where do you think it's going to go? Well, I, I like you. I'm, a, I'm an optimist. I, I can't envisage that the world is going to go down a route of the Arab Spring. I think, um, I think we've learned too much over the last you know, couple of hundred years of history that we will allow it to go that way. But I think we need to be very cognizant from, 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 from the family level to the community level to the, to the government level to the regional level of, and ultimately at the global level of the potential of, of this going wrong. And I think that if we are aware both on studying history and how it's played out before and identifying those trigger events that might lead us to indicate that the risks in a certain direction are greater and then we put in effective mitigation to be able to deal with that and again i talk about this multi-level we have a personal responsibility i think i think covid19 has demonstrated and if this is potentially one of the positive things the importance of family the importance of community the importance of community to support government and the support the importance of governments to to work effectively together um, now that's that I think is an uh, an ideal scenario, uh, uh, and one that we all hope to see play out. However, if you read the reporting from people like um, the Crisis Research Group and what have you, where where they're reporting in areas such as Libya, such as Yemen, such as Syria, you look at those geopolitical areas of tension between Pakistan and uh, and India, for example, Iran and the Gulf, Iran and the U.S. There are a myriad of different points of tension that unless very, very carefully handled could result in an escalation of existing security concerns um, at multiple levels. But I think if the world sits up and takes notice and takes responsibility from an individual level, so as as they're releasing us and we're going back down to the beaches or the parks or the mountains in my case, we're still taking on uh, an individual responsibility for us and our family to be able to say, okay, well, we still need to maintain some social distancing in order that the numbers don't start turning the wrong way. And that way we're supporting the community who is then opening up the economy as quickly as it can in governments, et cetera, et cetera. But it's got to happen all the way through. As in any crisis management approach, there are multi-layers approaches to it. So there is no point in the media continually berating government on their lack of ability or perceived lack of ability. Um, and the, and, the, and there's, there's little point on individuals just blaming everything on the government. We've all got a role to play, I think, from not allowing our freedom of voice to turn into violence and to support the broader system from the, from the ground level up. And, and if we do that, and I believe we will, then I think we'll come out a more resilient world from, from a business perspective. We will have learned things uh, and learned how to do business in ways we, we didn't know. The environmental impact may be positive in that maybe we don't need to travel quite so much and, and there are more efficient ways of doing business. We will have learned the importance of family and community to a greater or lesser degree and governments that may have been in relations of tension may have found ways to work together more effectively. We must all keep calm and carry on.
Paul Mercer, HawksiteSRM.com. Mr. Paul, thanks for coming on Security Management Highlights. We appreciate your insights and comments. Thank you very much for having me.